Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Monday, February 26th. The war in the Middle East is now 143 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. I'm just back from a trip to Atlanta over the weekend. I was pleased to learn we have some listeners down in Dixie who appreciate the balance between brevity and substance that we strive for here every day at the FDD Morning Brief. So thank you all for listening every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And thanks to the rest of you, too. In just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Illinois Congressman Brad Schneider. The veteran Democrat congressman is just back from a trip to Israel and Austria. We'll learn what he learned and perhaps a bit more. But before we speak to Congressman Schneider, let's talk about Hezbollah and Lebanon. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant announced yesterday that Israel will increase strikes on Hezbollah even if there is a Gaza ceasefire agreement. This is a significant shift from what happened last time around when the guns went silent in Gaza, there was quiet in Lebanon too. Or at least that's what we were led to believe. In fact, Hezbollah used that window of quiet to bring weapons and personnel closer to the Israeli border. And because the Israelis were trying to preserve calm, they didn't stop it. Consequently, Hezbollah was able to get close enough to Israeli military assets to subsequently launch some successful attacks. The IDF did not react because the government was desperate to get those first hostages back and also to stay on side with the United States amidst stern White House warnings not to escalate in the north. Well, now Israelis are saying halas or must speak, depending on whether you speak Arabic or Hebrew, but either way, Hezbollah will now not get a free pass. A major question is, what happens when Israel hammers Hezbollah when there is quiet in Gaza? Will that trigger the war that everyone has been trying to avoid? I think there's a good chance. I mean, maybe Israel understands that there is no further use in postponing the inevitable. The IDF has avoided a clash with Hezbollah for 18 years, but now there are some 100,000 residents of the northern communities who need to return home. Serious escalation appears all but certain. What happens next? I honestly don't know. But we are living in a post-107 world. The rules have changed. Only one thing has not changed. And I believe I've been saying this from day one. Keep an eye out for the war in the North. Now for your headlines. Headline one. Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia is urging the White House to provide Israel with only defensive weapons. You heard that right. The former vice presidential candidate and former Virginia governor is trying to deprive Israel of the weapons it needs to finish the war in Gaza. Such a move would also crush Israel's ability, what it needs to do in Lebanon, as we just discussed. I can't say I'm shocked. This sort of rhetoric continues to swirl amidst calls to end the war in Gaza, purportedly for the sake of Palestinians. But it begs the question as to whether these calls serve to benefit Hamas in the end. Just so we're clear, if this war ends without Israel taking out the last bastion of Hamas fighters in Rafah, I believe the Iran-backed group will find a way back to ruling Gaza. And then future wars are all but guaranteed. 
Headline two, and speaking of pressure on Israel, the Israeli public broadcaster Khan, or Channel 11, is reporting that the White House is considering more sanctions on West Bank settlers. I didn't love this the first time around, and I can't say I love it now. Look, if there are violent Israeli actors in the West Bank, they have it coming. But why not just issue a demarche to the Israeli government to arrest those that they see have been involved in violence? I'll tell you why. This is about virtue signaling to the progressive and woke elements of the, pre of the president's base. It won't accomplish much. It might even backfire if they go after Itamar Ben-Gvir, the right-wing Israeli politician would love the attention. Oh, and I can't help but notice that there have been exactly zero sanctions handed down on Qatari financiers of Hamas. Shocking, isn't it? Finally, headline three, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that total victory will be, quote, weeks away after the Rafa operation is launched. Okay, first of all, that Rafa operation may be postponed by six weeks or even more if there is a hostage deal. So that means the total victory would be weeks away after the other weeks. In other words, Bibi's total victory, as he called it, could be months from now, if my math is correct. But let's also remember, this is not the time to start promising mission accomplished. We all remember what happened to President George W. Bush after his speech on that aircraft carrier. After he, he declared victory over Saddam, Iraq descended into an insurgency, which is something the Israelis definitely need to prepare for in Gaza. Hamas, the terrorist group, may yet be destroyed, but Hamas, the idea, that's another problem entirely. We'll take a closer look at that possibility in future installments of the FTD Morning Brief. Okay, it's now my pleasure to introduce Congressman Brad Schneider. I've known the Congressman for a few years now, and I've had the pleasure of eating lunch with him recently in Chicago. He's got encyclopedic knowledge of the Middle East. He sits on the House Ways and Means Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He's also involved in several dozen different congressional caucuses. He's a truly active legislator who is passionate about a wide range of issues. So I can think of nobody better to bring on the FTD Morning Brief. Welcome, Congressman Brad Schneider. Hi, John. It's good to see you. Well, good to have you with us. Uh, so, Congressman, you're just back from Israel. You visited Kibbutz near Oz. You visited other places as well. Kibbutz near Oz, of course, was one of the communities hardest hit by the 10-7 attacks. What were your impressions from your conversations with the survivors and the other folks that you met with in Israel? Thank you. Yes, I, I was in Israel last week. I, I went with my local community, the Chicago Jewish Federation. Uh, it was not a political trip. It was really a trip to see the organizations that uh, Chicago's Federation is investing in to help uh, Israel recover. And we started our visit with a, a trip to Neuros to see the, the impact of the 10-7 attack. And it was devastating. You could see uh, the gruesome brutality of Hamas as they went literally house to house, uh, killing people, torturing, abusing, and then burning and mutilating not just the bodies, but the homes the people lived in. Uh, the Slowly, slowly, the, the community is starting to recover. Uh, the, the flowers are, are on the trees. You're seeing blossoms. Uh, they're starting to clean up uh, from, from the devastation. But this was a community of 400 people and 100, 25% were either murdered or taken hostage with uh, many still in, in Gaza. So they are uh, uh, resilient, they're strong, but they are, are suffering. And it, it will be a, a, a hole in their heart uh, forevermore. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, you talked to some folks from the business community too. What was the upshot there? 
the economy, we, we met with a, a number of folks as well as uh, journalists covering the economy. The economy has taken a hit, as you might expect. Uh, but again, Israel's resilient. They have grown a, a, an extraordinary economy over the last 75 years while facing threats from uh, all around. I think part of the reason Hamas attacked when they did is Israel was making progress first with the Abraham Accords. And as you know, there was discussions with uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and remarkably, those conversations are continuing. Israel is a part of the Middle East. So it will permanently be a part of, of the Middle East. And Israel's contribution is very much uh, about the technologies they're developing, the economy they've grown, and the integration into the greater Middle East, but the contributions uh, into the regions even further beyond, into Africa, Asia, and Europe. Well, we'll, we'll be watching that. I know that's uh, that's a significant challenge for the Israelis as they have to try to cover their budget for the war and all the uh, costs associated with it. It's not going to be easy. Let me shift gears for a minute. After you visited Israel, I understand you were also in Vienna, where you met with the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Association, the nuclear watchdog, more commonly known as the IAEA. Now, they've got their hands full with Iran right now. How was that discussion? It was, it was constructive. I, I did meet with uh, DG Rossi as well as uh, the U.S. Ambassador, uh, Laura Holgate. Uh, and, and let me take a step back. You know, you, you talked about in your opening remarks about Hezbollah and the threats to Israel on the northern front. We talked about the attack from Hamas and the war where Hamas has to be uh, removed. The threat has to be eliminated. Israel is facing threats from the south, from the Houthis. There's a common thread through all of these, which is Iran. And, and these groups give Iran uh, strategic depth that's not just a threat to Israel, but to the region and to U.S. US interests. Um, the concern of Iran having a nuclear weapon uh, only greatly uh, expands those threats. And so it is imperative that uh, the IAEA, uh, the E3, and, and the United States to continue to, to do everything we can to make sure uh, that uh, um, Iran never, get, never gets a nuclear weapon. Uh, the, the Europeans and the U.S. put out a statement in December uh, making that uh, point. And we need to continue to push. But Iran's enriching to 60%. One of the things we talked about is they're playing this cat and mouse game. They're enriching at the same time as they're uh, blending down. Uh, so they're staying kind of in a stasis, but sending a signal. Uh, we need to send a signal back. And we talked about this in, in our meeting. Uh, the United States needs, needs to send a very strong signal that uh, we are deadly serious. Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. Well, I, I hope we follow through on that. Uh, you also joined a congressional delegation to the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. For our listeners who don't know, first of all, what is this? And then what was accomplished there? Yeah, the OSCE, unlike NATO, which is a, a defensive alliance uh, with the treaty uh, of European nations, OSCE, is e OSCE, Organization of Security and Cooperation of Europe, is a broader organization. It's got 57 countries that are, are members, and it is uh, talking about strategies and steps that we can take to try to enhance security and, and reduce the, the risk uh, and threats to, to member states. Uh, last week was a busy week. It wasn't just the annual OSCE, OSCE meeting in Vienna. You had the uh, Munich Security Conference uh, as well, just preceding this. A lot of people had attended both. The conversations that I was engaged with in Vienna all uh, centered around, will the United States stop, step up and then pass the essential funding bills, funding bill to support Ukraine in its fight against Russia, to support Israel in its fight, not just against Hamas, but as you mentioned, Hezbollah and others? And uh, will the United States continue to lead? Uh, we are at a, a perilous moment in history. 
And uh, the United States is at a uh, crossroads as we head into an election. And the decisions we make today, whether or not we're going to have that vote in Congress, the Senate passed it, the House needs to bring it to the floor. It'll pass with 300 votes at least, uh, but it's got great risk to Speaker Johnson. That was the conversation more than anything else uh, in my visit. Well, let's unpack that that, uh, that 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 action that's going on in Congress right now. I mean, we 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 need to pass that funding for our allies in Israel and Ukraine who are fighting against tyranny and terror. What's going on here? I mean, how how, how are we to understand exactly what's happening in Washington? I wish I had a good answer. I'm I'm trying to understand exactly what's happening. I don't think we've ever been uh, at a place like this. Uh, United States interests in around the world, but in particular in Europe, where we have keen interests facing the, as you mentioned, the tyranny of Putin. If Putin takes Ukraine, he is he has said he doesn't stop there. Russia doesn't stop there. It's a threat to Poland, to the Baltics, uh, to Romania and, and beyond. And you'll see U.S. forces uh, in greater numbers at greater risk uh, in Europe. Uh, Hamas doesn't want to stop with just defeating Israel. Uh, they're looking at the United States and they're supported by Iran for Iran. Uh, Israel is little Satan. The U.S. is is big Satan. This these are our fights, and so that the fact that we're not having the constructive debate, recognizing what the threats are to the United States, and that by supporting Ukrainians fighting for their sovereignty and independence and freedom, uh, putting their lives on the line, I think uh, uh, Zelensky estimated that uh, more than thirty thousand soldiers have died, but tens of thousands more civilians have died. The United States doesn't have a single soldier uh, in Ukraine fighting that fight. Israel's doctrine has always been Israel will defend itself by itself. Uh, but Israel's fight is also our fight. The fact that we can't have that debate on the floor of the House, that a handful, and it is but a handful of Republicans are saying to Speaker Johnson, if you even allow a vote, allow Congress to work its will, we will uh, remove, you, remove, your, remove you from your post. Um, we need to fix that rule. But in the meantime, Speaker Johnson needs to, to bring the, the bill to the floor. And I think, like I said, you'll see well more than 300 uh, representatives, Republicans and Democrats, uh, pass it and send it to the president. Quite a drama there. Um, last question for you here before we let you go. I know you're a longtime supporter of Israel. I also know that this is not an easy time for the Israelis, uh, as they fight their war in Gaza and as they face other wars potentially around the rest of the Middle East, they're finding some challenges here in Washington, right? There are mixed messages, even some tough messages coming out of the White House and Congress. Where are we right now as it relates to support for Israel in Washington? It's a great question. I can say with confidence that Israel still retains strong bipartisan support. And that is across the House, across the Senate as well. But there are voices that are increasingly loud. And loud doesn't make them right. And loud doesn't make them strong. But the longer um, they're uh, in, enabled and empowered to, to you know, uh, make their claims, unsubstantiated claims, talking about genocide, uh, Talking about conditioning aid, you mentioned Senator Kane saying let's restrict it to defensive aid, uh, and and listening to those who aren't seeking to bring peace to, to the Middle East, but really seeking to destroy uh, Israel and and the Jewish state, um, it's a greater risk. So we need to make sure we stand strong, stand united, are vocal. It's not a matter of screaming louder. 
than the other side. It's a matter of making sure we're presenting uh, the case. The strategic uh, um, relationship between the United States and Israel uh, benefits the United States every bit as much as it benefits Israel. Uh, Israel's place in the Middle East, you know, one of the things I talk to my colleagues all the time about is that there's been a Jewish presence uh, in the land of Israel for more than 3,000 years. Tal Becker talks about the Abraham Accords, recognizing for the first time that Jews, as well of it as Arabs, belong to the same land, and that there is a place for Israel uh, that is uh, uh, permanent and a part of a region that uh, has a bright future. Hamas, Hezbollah, these other groups are nihilistic. They have a, a vision of a much darker future. And uh, so we can't let up. We can't take our uh, foot off the gas or, or lower our voices uh, and, and give any ground uh, to those who uh, want to delegitimize Israel, want to destroy Israel, uh, to, to have the upper hand. And so I'll continue to do that with every breath I have. Uh, we continue to build support. I'm going back to Israel uh, next month with a delegation of, of uh, members of Congress. That will be a, a political trip uh, where we'll talk to, to the elected leaders in, in Israel. And uh, my goal is to make sure my colleagues understand and see Israel's threats, but also Israel's opportunities the way I do. And we were talking earlier, uh, one of the people I met on my trip last week was Ori Megadish, the Israeli soldier who was captured, uh, held hostage for uh, uh, more than three weeks and rescued by the IDF. Uh, today it was announced that she is returning to duty in Israel, uh, in the IDF. Uh, when we talked, she talked about her commitment to her country, to service, to the Jewish state and the Jewish people. And uh, her resilience, her courage should be, example, should be an example for all of us. And it's something I'll take back uh, when I go to Washington on Wednesday and share with my colleagues. All right. Well, thank you, Congressman Brad Schneider, for taking time out to join us today. And thanks for your terrific work. Thank you. Always good to see you. Okay, here's what FTD has on tap for you today. My colleague Rich Goldberg has a new piece in the Dispatch that just eviscerates the White House-led talks regarding Israel's border with Lebanon. He warns that the deal being pursued by White House senior advisor Amos Hochstein will yield a victory for Hezbollah, while Israel would get the short end of the stick. Rich also argues that the longer a war between Israel and Hezbollah is delayed, the bloodier and costlier that eventual war will be. I don't disagree. My colleague Elaine Dzinski, head of FDD's Center on Economic and Financial Power, is out with a new piece in the New York Post suggesting economic warfare strategies that Washington can and should deploy against Russian strongman Vladimir Putin and his war machine in Ukraine in the aftermath of the murder of opposition figure Alexei Navalny. And finally, FDD's Iran nuclear experts will be hosting a live virtual briefing tomorrow at 1.15 p.m. on our website as the aforementioned IAEA prepares to meet next week to discuss Iran among its other challenges. FDD will host renowned nuclear physicist David Albright for a conversation with FDD's Anthony Ruggiero, Andrea Stricker, and Rich Goldberg. They'll dig into the latest intel on Iran's nuclear program, including the regime's current timeline for a bomb, its weaponization capabilities, and more. Consistent with FTD's brand, our panel won't be just admiring the problem. We'll be dishing out specific policy recommendations for Washington and others, all with the goal of turning the screws on Iran at the upcoming IAEA meeting. Okay, that's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FTD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at FTD.org invest. Tune in Wednesday for another installment of the FTD Morning Brief. 
I can't tell you exactly how it's going to go, but there will be more updates, more brevity, and another great guest. So until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FTD. Thank you.